0: Welcome to Skynet today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. On this special interview episode, you'll get to hear from an expert on the intersection of AI and medicine about the many ways AI relates to the current coronavirus crisis and about other questions and trends at the intersection of AI and medicine. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to healthcare and tackling the climate crisis. And with me for this interview is Professor Matt Lungren, one of our fantastic collaborators in the lab. Matt is a faculty at Stanford, a co-director at the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medicine and Imaging, or Amy, uh, an interventional radiologist at Stanford University School of Medicine, and is on the Machine Learning Committee at the Radiological Society of North America, or RSNA. Thanks for making the time for this, Matt. I imagine it must be a hectic time to some extent. Uh, how have the last few weeks been going for you? As the coronavirus crisis has really hit here in the us
1: yeah, hi, thanks, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, you know it has been a crazy few weeks it's been um, it's been pretty much nonstop. I will say that um, both as uh, sort of a radiologist on the front lines in the procedural world, uh, dealing with these patients, uh, learning practically every day uh, more and more about this disease and and what we are to do on the front lines to to treat and manage these patients but but also to learn about how we can potentially apply some of our research and data science uh, techniques to to help make better decisions and potentially forecast what we're what we're going to be expecting in the, in the days and weeks to come.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so given how it's very much uh, what most of us are thinking about these days for this podcast, we'll start off by focusing on COVID-19 and then later step back to discuss less topical things. Uh, So two weeks ago, there was an article called Can AI Diagnose COVID-19 on CT Scans? Can humans? It concludes with, quote, AI tools built to diagnose COVID-19 infection need to be evaluated robustly since current radiological knowledge does not have specific features that can help identify COVID-19 infection on CT scans. That said, AI tools have a vital role to play in quantifying disease progression and possibly predicting disease outcomes. So Matt, what are your thoughts on AI's role in diagnosis and other aspects of the response to coronavirus?
1: Yeah, this is a very, very interesting article and there have been, of course, many since. I I, uh... One of my colleagues uh, kind of quipped that. that all of the hundreds of emails a day about AI have switched to COVID emails, and um, and it's kind of interesting that we still find ourselves at the center of a lot of this. But you know, from from our perspective, I think that there are there are several great opportunities and, and even a couple pitfalls that I think as a community we have to be careful about. I think you know, starting out, I think that you know, as this crisis is sort of developing, we've seen groups that have rapidly been overwhelmed by these cases, and to the point where even the point of care testing, as we've seen in Italy and parts of China and certain circumstances has really hampered their ability to to identify these patients and properly triage them. And so in those settings, um, imaging actually played a vital role. And there have been a couple of great papers that have described opportunities for for quick screening and and simply triaging for patients who are coming and presenting with, uh, with respiratory illness. Um, but, you know, looking more long term and where AI might fit in, I think that, you know, for the most part, it's kind of one of those questions where uh, AI may be able to do something um, in terms of identifying these patients and potentially even quantifying the disease. But um, as many articles have pointed out, and, and certainly most medical societies have tried to emphasize, uh, it's not an ideal screening test. And and I think it's, um, although tempting to potentially use it for that purpose, uh, and then certainly uh, consider, you know, injecting AI into that uh, screening process, it, it actually could potentially cause more harm, uh, harm than good. And, and let me explain why. I think that for the most part, not only do you have patients that are um, highly contagious uh, and have the opportunity then as you bring them into the healthcare system to image them, uh, potentially infecting staff and, and other frontline care workers, only to find that they have a disease for which you have a high pretest probability and likely have other ways to diagnose, it doesn't quite make sense and, and, and potentially could, as I mentioned, cause harm. The other issue is that, you know, even though that there are some findings on imaging that are very specific uh, for uh for COVID-19 in the proper pretest. Uh, grouping. If you imagine now, take away the pandemic, and we're in an endemic situation where we have this disease circulating, but also many other common diseases that we typically see on on imaging. Then, then you have a situation where you're potentially uh, overdiagnosing uh, uh, COVID nineteen, for example. Particularly if you're training models to recognize what are what are you know in, in conglomerate a very uh, general. Uh, group of findings, and so it, it can be challenging to to sort of find where AI could fit in here. But but in my view, there are some potential uh, big opportunities for for model development. I think the first, I think, will be as part of as you sort of pointed out from the from that article, is trying to understand in con- in conjunction with the clinical data who is going to need an escalated level of care and who will not. Um, it's uh, not entirely clear that we have a, a, a grip on this, uh, both from the clinical front lines and and certainly from the research perspective. And we're still learning about how to determine who is going to do well that you can manage them at home safely, um, and then those that need to be hospitalized and potentially intubated on a mechanical ventilator to to get them through uh, get them through the disease. And so that is a place where I believe imaging, but also imaging in in, in addition to clinical data could could potentially play a huge role. And AI, of course, if you can uh, come up with a quantification of, of the disease or even a prediction of, of the outcome, uh, could even p- potentially provide better clinical decision support from that perspective. So that, that's a really big opportunity. I think that the, another one that I, I I don't see a lot of folks talking about, but I do think will be important, uh, we have to remember that this uh, pandemic and, and what we're calling the surge will eventually sort of uh, and, and thankfully fade away into a uh, sort of a new environment of we have to live with this disease at least um, until we have a greater herd immunity and um, and have the uh, uh, availability of vaccines uh, that are effective and so until that time which again could be a year maybe even two years from now we have to figure out a way to to identify these patients among uh, patients that might be presenting with heart failure or the flu or uh, bacterial pneumonia atypical pneumonias there's all kinds of other respiratory diseases uh, that we're going to need to be better at identifying these patients um, and certainly triaging them out uh, in, a, in a more um, usual population. And that is going to become a particularly important next fall as we uh, you know, we talked to many different epidemiologists and so scientists who are telling us that, you know, this is likely to have a, a second peak uh, to come in the fall and, and hopefully we'll be ready, certainly more ready than we have been uh, during this endemic. But I, I do believe that this will be an opportunity to uh, to use machine learning to try to be more intelligent about our differential diagnosis uh, for findings that may or may not be very specific. But also what we've been finding, which is very unique about this disease and something that I really want, um, want everyone to, to sort of think about is that we've seen such a high percentage 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 of of patients who have uh, apparently been able to uh, spread this disease or what we call viral shedding, um, even though they're asymptomatic. And and that's a very unique hallmark of this particular disease, and why it's been so difficult to to control um, and to contain. And and imaging actually plays in that case an incredibly important role. Uh, and and if you can develop an AI model, for example, that has the ability to to flag imaging examinations on patients who are not uh, being evaluated for respiratory distress, but instead being evaluated for other. Problems. Uh, you can imagine someone showing up after a car accident and getting a chest CT. And incidentally, they also have uh, findings of COVID, COVID-19, uh, lung infection or someone coming in for uh, a lung nodule or a lung cancer follow-up. And they also happen to have findings for, uh, for COVID-19. Now, this is important because number one, if you're asymptomatic, you're potentially exposing people around you and and we would like to be able to continue to control these outbreaks from a public health perspective. So an AI model that's running in the background on, on any imaging test that uh, may image those portions of the lung and have findings that could be sensitive for, for COVID-19 could potentially identify patients, um, even potentially alerting uh, public health authorities of outbreaks, but certainly not allowing um, uh, the outbreak to continue You know, decontaminating the scanner identifying the, the, the patients and certainly doing some contact tracing would be important follow-ups there. So, so those are just a couple examples, I think, in my mind of where uh, I think the intersection of AI and, uh, and, and healthcare, particularly as this uh, crisis is kind of evolving, um, I think could play a big role.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, I think one thing that you've really stressed in there is how AI can be helpful in ways where it would do less harm, for example, in triaging and not necessarily direct diagnosis, but that kind of background indirect diagnosis uh, for patients who come in for other things, not necessarily for COVID-19, that doctors are already uh, quite equipped to uh, focus on um, in terms of finding uh, finding that signature in the image could you unpack a little bit how AI would be uh, enabling less harm than diagnosis when it comes to helping with triaging?
1: Yeah, I think I think with triaging, um, if, if you were, let's say, to just simply deploy a model that was trained to recognize COVID, I think that, again, in in this population, you you might find that it's fairly useful in the sense that you can certainly um, you know, again, identify the hallmark symptoms. And, and as we talked about, maybe have a, you know, quantification measure that would be helpful clinically, but, but then imagine if your pretest probability starts to, to starts to change, um, but your model hasn't. And, um, and then you could have patients coming in with, you know, for example, heart failure, uh, coming in with you know, viral pneumonias of other etiologies or even bacterial pneumonia. And if we're relying on imaging alone, which again, I, I don't anticipate would ever be the case, but but just playing out that scenario, let, you know, why not just take a model and start deploying it and using it for diagnosis on imaging and screening? Uh, again, the, the dangers there, I think, would be both in the sense that, um, you know, you would have uh, mis- misapplication of this diagnosis to patients that, that need to be treated in other ways. But, but second, um, you know, Public health actually has quite a bit of um, leeway to, um, at least in this country, to take away your freedom. Um, And imagine that you're coming in with uh, an exacerbation of of congestive heart failure. You don't have COVID nineteen, but some of the imaging findings on the lungs might be uh, might be similar enough for a machine learning model to 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 misdiagnose that. Um, And so, if you're relying on simply that model to make that diagnosis on that single imaging examination,s you can actually quarantine that person right for 14 days. You might subjective to. to Further testing that that maybe they wouldn't necessarily need, um, and, and you could also, of course, be alerting uh, and, and and maybe potentially alarming their 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 contacts. And so, you know, there are certainly places where this um, this application is not a. Um, one size fits all. Um, and, and it definitely uh, would require um, sort of synthesis of other information. And that's where back to the concept of, you know, where can AI really help in healthcare and how, how can it really have a bigger impact? Um, what we've seen in these early efforts, um, which have been great, is is really just sort of taking a data set and training a model to to perform a relatively narrow task uh, at very you know high levels, and particularly as we benchmark against human experts, and that's terrific. Um, but but remember that the human task at its core, particularly in medicine, and, and no matter which specialty you're in, still requires quite a bit of context. I mean, the the ten to twelve years of medical training leading up to being able to do this independently. Um, isn't just about learning how to read an image for example or make a certain diagnosis it's about understanding the the, the whole patient right and, and the clinical context and that's where I think there's some opportunities for uh, some some research I've seen in, in sort of multimodal uh, and fusion uh, modalities where you can potentially take uh, you know other data like structured data or even unstructured text data and, and and sort of bring that into the model along with the pixel data and then you can maybe have a better maybe even a holistic picture of what's happening In in healthcare applications for a given patient, um, maybe making better diagnoses and certainly uh, having a, a better chance of being clinically meaningful.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like there are many ways where AI could uh, do much more than just imaging and come in and really integrate that information. Uh, It also sounds like that there is quite a bit of harm that could be done, not only uh, when there is a false positive, uh, which we are probably aware of what the harm would be there, um, but also a false negative. On to shifting a little bit um, away from that article, uh, which, by the way, to listeners, uh, was linked on the page of COVID-19 and imaging AI resources put out by Amy, the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medicine and Imaging, of which uh, Matt is the co-director. So RSNA, uh, the Radiological Society of North America, announced just a week ago that it's launching a COVID-19 imaging data repository in a bid to boost. Research on the novel disease. Matt, could you tell us a bit more about these efforts?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this is something that um, I'm, I'm very, uh, very passionate about. I think, in general, certainly as part of the Amy Center mission, um, but but just more broadly in the research and education communities, I think that um, one thing that healthcare has not done as well as um, as those in the computer science world is, is share. Um, certainly, we share results of, of things that we discover and certainly things that we work on, but but we're not as um, we're not as used to sharing um, our models and and our data sets, and and obviously some of that has to do with with privacy and other considerations. But uh, as we've learned more, particularly in the the medical imaging world, um, we've realized that uh, without the ability to share data freely across institutions and, and, and collaborations, um, we actually. Um, hurt ourselves and particularly trying to develop uh, clinically useful useful models in our practices. And so as this COVID pandemic began to come forward, I think that it really provided an opportunity for alignment of interests across many different groups, the Radiologic Society of North America, of course, uh, being the largest, um, but our partners in Europe, um, uh, partners in Australia and Asia, uh, and even our other, um, cousin organizations in radiology have all really gotten together and said, how can we work together, uh, with all of our collective resources, uh, partnering with, um, both commercial and, and government entities to really make a resource available to, um, to anyone out there who both, uh, feels that they like to share, uh, data, um, more broadly, but also, um, access data in order to, to learn more about this disease uh, and potentially develop, in this case, uh, models that might be clinically, clinically useful. It's very similar, I think, to, um, to, the, to the sort of effort that came on early in the pandemic, where researchers immediately sequenced the genome of COVID-19, the viral genome, and then released it, you know, almost as fast. And um, because of that effort, we're, we're months, if not years, ahead of the normal timeline for vaccine development. And there are groups all over the world working independently and together, um, you know, alternating sort of discoveries and figuring out pathways to to create vaccines. And that is uh, sort of the same spirit that we would like to bring from the medical imaging community. We recognize that. The imaging findings are um, going to be at least uh, in the discussion for the foreseeable future. And certainly imaging will play a role in the management of this disease uh, going forward. And so uh, we can't continue to have uh, small data sets that... Are you know independently uh, researched and and have uh, the opportunity for us as a community to develop new approaches or, or have uh, conclusions that, that actually are clinically relevant. So um, this effort is not just about you know creating this data set, but it's also about aligning our annotation efforts so that we don't have a tower of Babel as as typically can happen when many different groups are attempting to 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 work on the same problem, and so if we can achieve, and, and and again, I think this is going to be potentially one of the biggest silver linings out of this uh, current crisis is that we've we've never seen groups work so quickly and so so easily together. And in just about a week and a half, we have almost a hundred different groups who have pledged to to make data available. We have. Um, partnered throughout Europe and I mentioned partners in Asia and other groups all working together right now on creating the annotation sort of rule book or, or, or data dictionary uh, coming up with clinical um, data points that would be important for for this data set to include and, and and the gathering of data to make it available completely open and free is uh, is, is, is rapidly progressing and so, I hope that this, this spirit of collaboration and open source data will hopefully continue uh, in the future where we see. Uh, you know, these groups recognizing now the, the, the benefits of having this uh, available to everyone so that we sort of, you know, in the sense of the public good, we're all working together uh, to make this uh, to make this work. And so, again, I, I'm confident that this um, that this effort will will lead to something that I think will will stand as a model for for data set sharing in, uh, in the future.
0: I hope so, too. It sounds like COVID-19 is in some sense a catalyst for this quote-unquote ImageNet net for medicine. Could you perhaps uh, give some motivations as to why medical data is particularly challenging compared to, let's say, uh, open sourcing an image net of perception data uh, to our listeners um, and also why this is very difficult to do rapidly, uh, especially now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I do like the, the comment you made about a uh, medical ImageNet, because I think that's a, a wonderful analogy for, for what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, I think that before ImageNet was a thing, um, it was difficult to, uh, at least this, the, the story goes, it was difficult to convince people how important data was, uh, in, in sort of the model and AI communities, um, towards the process of, of making useful models. And I think that that conversation has sort of been answered, um, or that question has been answered by, by the success and and the subsequent breakthroughs because of the availability of that data. In medicine, it's it's very tricky. I think that um, you know historically, um, obviously, privacy is a huge concern, and we share that concern. We certainly don't want to uh, violate anyone's uh, privacy, particularly as it comes to uh, to medicine uh, and medical diagnoses. Uh, in the U.S., in particular, we have a, a strange healthcare system with a lot of different stakeholders, some of which are uh, not always aligned. Um, and you can imagine if your uh, diagnosis is uh, is somehow made available to an open source group and you're identified, Uh, maybe you won't be able to get insurance in the future. Maybe you'll have difficulties, uh, you know, getting a job or whatever. And we, we certainly recognize those sensitivities. And and that's uh, why I think in, in, you know, again, why there's laws and other things that really clamp down on, on any sort of effort that would, that would potentially violate uh, medical privacy. At the same time, I think that patients are increasingly comfortable with, with the concept that, um, in the right hands uh, for, for research and education use, et cetera, uh, they're very comfortable with making data available for advancing science and learning more about disease. Um, I am frequently in, in touch with patients uh, for different studies at Stanford and other institutions where uh, they're freely offering up data. Uh, they are volunteering to, you know, take home wearables, for example, and make that data completely available and, and of course, used for research. And so I think that there is definitely a spirit of, um, of interest from from the patient side, uh, and and I think that part of that is is related to trust. Um, we don't um, we don't sell their data. Uh, we make that very clear. Um, we don't use their data for other profit purposes beyond you know its primary use. And and um, and and then when we do make these data sets available, they're not for commercial use. They're not meant. Uh, for that purpose, and I think that those kinds of uh, statements and, and uh, stances, at least from our perspective, has have really made it possible for uh, that trust with our patients and and others, uh, other institutions who are interested in doing this. And so, and by the way, it is it is quite um, easy, at least in the medical imaging uh, space, to make this data available um, and to do it safely. There are regulatory hurdles, and there are certainly uh, various nuances regarding how to de-identify data. But it is definitely doable, um, and medical imaging and particularly in the radiology space has been a strictly digital enterprise for you know more than a decade and a half and because of that we really are in a wonderful position to uh, to make large volumes of, of imaging data available uh, to a, to a community like the computer science community in a very similar way to imagenet um, and I think that we'll see even similar breakthroughs i mean the work that we've seen happen uh, in this field so far i think has been you know astounding and has really moved the ball forward but uh, at the same time, we know that we can do much more um, and, and the key to doing more just as we saw with the initial work with ImageNet is, is to make more data available uh, so that models that are developed on it can be more generalizable we can have new and fascinating insights and potentially harmonize across large other efforts that, um, that seek to do the same thing. So I think that, you know, as we've, again, as we've built trust, as we've made it clear that we're interested in research and education, uh, sharing medical imaging data uh, with the public good in mind, uh, obviously in a responsible way, has really, um, has really been something that, that we found to be the best strategy going forward.
0: Yeah, it sounds like norms are shifting not only from physicians or researchers' perspectives, but also patients and the public and their level of comfort with sharing data, uh, or rather an understanding that it's becoming increasingly useful. Um, and so I think you touched on this a little bit. But more formally, in addition to the data repository, RSNA also released a new survey to gather radiology business leaders' thoughts and level of interest in data sharing during the pandemic and revealed after that that it has agreed with the European Society of Medical Imaging Informatics to share that information as part of its COVID-19 AI initiative. Uh, So hopefully norms are shifting. And so moving gears a little bit as we see this exponential curve of growth uh, in COVID cases, as well as, uh, unfortunately, the death rate as well. We also see, uh, and I saw this on, on Twitter somewhere, an exponential curve of growth in academic papers in this space as well. Where, Matt, do you think recent advances can make the largest impact? A lot of people say, you know, Urgent times um, like COVID-19 right now are the best times to apply AI where we do have limited medical bandwidth. Um, Also, uh, areas generally speaking with limited medical bandwidth, for example, developing countries without access to care.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think that we have a tendency, those of us who are kind of sequestered in our own fields, to to you know everything looks like a nail when, when you have this AI hammer right so so certainly we think about oh well how can we um, how can we be a part of this effort uh, to to help you know treat this disease to help predict the next outbreak um, to come up with the next therapy and of course if you ask someone in the AI research they're going to say well I have an AI tool that can maybe do that but in fairness I think that the fact is is that this um, pandemic um, has generated large amounts of data. Uh, that data has probably, um, at this point, saved many lives. Um, if you look at countries like uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, and even South Korea, uh, early on in the in the pandemic, because of the opportunity to have access to data with you know a, a well reasoned plan, they were able to sort of predict outbreaks and and sort of mitigate some of the some of the struggles that I think others found themselves in. And even with the Difficulty that we've seen this pandemic cause to different healthcare systems. I think that the again the mass amount of data, the research that's being published, the release of information um, is so critically important in in a disease that we've just never had to fight before, and we we aren't familiar with. I didn't learn about COVID nineteen in medical school. No one did, um, and so we're all learning together um, and. And I think that the you know one of the reasons why I think those of us in data science and AI are so excited about an opportunity to have an impact here is that we're seeing that data really can move the needle uh, in in saving lives. And you know, if I had to choose an area to your to your question where you know AI is going to have the biggest impact, um, you know, I'd love to say it was medical imaging or even clinical data prediction, but I, I don't actually think that's going to be where the ultimate uh, the ultimate win will be. I, I do feel that some big opportunities. I think are being explored with understanding the structure of of the COVID nineteen uh, genome and, and protein structure, and and attempting to find drugs and and, and even vaccines uh, that can effectively treat it. I think that we we may be able to treat these patients uh, more effectively with data and better decisions. I think that we can diagnose and identify them with with AI tools and things that we're developing. But um, but I think that some of the applications where you're able to screen infinitely large numbers of potential drugs, uh, and, and, um, and treatment sites. I think that that is an application where uh, the superhuman quote unquote component of, of some of the AI uh, applications really are going to pay off. Um, and I, and I sincerely hope that it does, um, because, you know, right now we're still fighting, uh, with, without, um, without the kind of, uh, arsenal that we need to, to really, to really treat this disease.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Basically, understanding the structure of COVID-19, drug discovery, and given the fact that COVID-19 is uh, open source, the genome is open source, uh, I've actually had a couple of friends put out papers because they saw that open source structure, uh, which I I found very exciting. I almost thought that they, uh, (laughs) I thought they were working with the actual virus at first. So that, that does point to one thing. So many of our uh, listeners do want to help. And perhaps that is one way to help to start reading those papers and understanding um, understanding what's going on and what's at the front lines in terms of academic uh, problems within genomics and how AI could help. Um, but many of our listeners are also not only in AI, but in tech at large. What are ways that you think they could help in general? I know we've chatted about this a little bit before, um, but would be curious to hear your thoughts listed out here.
1: No, absolutely. I, I have been, um, incredibly impressed and, you know, with my connections with tech and obviously living here in Silicon Valley, um, I think that maybe at the end of all of this, we will have um, an opportunity to to thank uh, our colleagues in tech and and some of the things that I've already seen happen have been absolutely tremendous and maybe not even recognized yet uh, for, for how much of an impact they've had. And the first thing I, I wanted to say is that, you know, for a large group of highly educated folks that, that work in this area in the tech industry to make the decision prior to any medical... Uh, you know, mandate to, to shelter in place, to work from home, uh, 10, 10 to 15 days before, uh, the county did in the Silicon Valley area, the San Francisco Bay area that saved lives. We know that that saved lives. That's tens of thousands of people that were no longer you know, in contact with one another. They're working from home. All of those contact points help flatten the curve as we say here uh, and as, as we're all familiar with now. And I think that that is the first thing i you know, I point to as, as where our tech colleagues have really uh, saved lives and helped, uh, helped all of us um, on the med- medical side. I think that some of the other areas that I've seen that have been just absolutely fantastic um, include um, large scale surveillance and in, sen- in the sense of understanding where folks are searching for you know, flu-like symptoms. Some of those uh, applications i found to be very, very useful. Uh, there have been some groups, um, uh, Ericsson, I believe, and Slack have put together a HIPAA-compliant uh, channel that verifies that you're a clinician uh, with, with your national credentials as well as personal information in order to get you into a system where you can have free-flowing communication uh, with medical colleagues all across the country. Um, that has been tremendously helpful. We are all learning on our own in on the front lines about this disease and how best to treat our patients. What we don't want to do is continue to reinvent the wheel in multiple places. And so tech's ability to connect people in a way that's never been possible before has been, uh, it's just been phenomenal. Um, and 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 we're all learning from one another, again, in ways that we, we weren't ever able to do before. And it's possible because, you know, tech has reached out. I think that some of the other things that we've seen is a tremendous uh, spirit of, of how can I help and providing resources, providing, uh, you know, storage uh, resources, providing, uh, internet and communication services for frontline workers, even being able to, uh, as we've seen with some of the uh, larger groups, um, make PPE available through large connections, help create, uh, the, the, uh, the connections in order to make, uh, different resources available to, to uh, hospitals that may not have had access to that before. Um, there is a, there's a tremendous spirit of, of, um, of collaboration and, and willingness to help, and I think that we've seen that already take place. For those out there who are, you know, sheltering in place, that maybe they're a little bit bored uh, and they're really looking to, to roll up their sleeves and get involved. I think that there are, are still a, a, a phenomenal number of opportunities to do so. I think that I would point them certainly to their own internal groups and and uh, and corporate, uh, you know, efforts and initiatives. Simple things like obviously giving blood and, and, and donating PPE and, and things like that are on the table, but bringing Technical and data expertise to uh, to this, these large amounts of data that are being publicly released, I think, is an opportunity. We've seen that obviously the group at Johns Hopkins has made uh, practically every COVID case that's publicly available um, open. Uh, but you know, similar efforts at UCSF, similar efforts at Stanford, uh, similar efforts around the world. All that data is, is, is possibly, you know, a, a source of new information that, that we could learn about. Um, and I think we're seeing groups being able to very accurately predict things like when do we expect the next? A surge of patients? When should we expect the doubling time? How do we prepare our ICUs for having enough you know equipment and ventilators? Um, these are all areas where um, the data scientists crowdsourcing community have really made a huge difference. Sharing just sharing packages or sharing code that, that you've written that may make a, make a, someone's life a lot easier. Uh, These are all things that are happening right now uh, that are really, uh, you know, again, making a a tremendous difference for all of us. And I, you know, now I'll I'll end with just the, the, you know, there's the group out there that I think works in the, in the, you know, the virtual world, but then there's also the group of engineers that we've seen doing, doing very, very helpful things. I mean, they 3D printed face shields for us. They have, uh, you know, come up with new and innovative ways to ventilate patients that, you know, decades of crusty old medical research has not been even remotely looked at. And and now they're getting dusted off and people are saying, Hey, why can't we do it this way uh, with some of our modern technologies and techniques? And uh, it's just, it's just incredible. I I haven't seen anything more inspiring than, than the way that the tech community at large has really gone hand in hand with the medical community uh, and and really helped us do our job.
0: Wow. That is a very humble opinion. (laughs) <laughs> um I'm, I'm glad we're helping in the tech community, um, and I hope we continue to help and also be um, equally, if not more, as humble. This has been extremely informative and helpful, Matt. Thank you so much for taking your time to lend your insight and expertise at the intersection of AI and medicine, especially in light of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and your insight and expertise at the intersection of AI and medicine, especially in light of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So thank you so much for you can find the articles we discussed and Professor Matt Lundgren's profile, as well as subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show or if you like Matt. Be sure to tune in next week.